So noblemen and noble women have dined on strange stews and exotic fowl, including swan and young heron, when after the third course the doors of the hall open and in rides a mysterious knight on an extraordinary horse. It could be the inciting incident in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, or the event by which escapade and adventure are triggered in several Arthurian narratives. Except the steed this knight is mounted on is made of brass, and the king is not Arthur but Cambiuscan, aka Genghis Khan, not to be confused with Combuscan, the bipedal chicken-like Pokemon character with powerful thighs who can deliver as many as 10 kicks per second. As well as bestowing the gift of the alloy horse, the knight also presents a sword with magical healing properties, a mirror that warns against adversity, and a ring given to the king's daughter, Canacee. That if her lust it for to wear, upon her thumb or in her purse it bear, there is no fowl that fleeth under the heaven, that she ne shall well understand his stern. Early next morning, out walking in the woods, and now able to converse freely in the language of birds, Canacee encounters a female falcon, crying and beating herself with her wings until blood runs down the tree in which she roosts. Canacee catches the bird in the lap of her skirt and encourages it to tell its tale. And in the Canterbury Tales, I'm not certain there is a more moving passage than this section of the squire's tale, no matter that it's an age-old story. The falcon's mate, a tersolet or male hawk, having stolen both her heart and her virtue, has broken all his vows of fidelity and left her for a common kite. When suddenly he loved this kite to so, that all his love is clean from me ago. Canacee bandages the falcon's wounds, including bites from her own beak, and builds a velvet-covered pen or mew to keep her in. Chaucer wasn't by any means the first poet to write about birds of prey, but I present this extract as an illuminated backcloth to what I'm about to say. Hang it here as a kind of medieval tapestry, illustrating as it does the enduring and occasionally endearing themes which raptors of various species have come to represent in literature. Themes such as class status, humanity's on-off relationship with the natural world, and of course conflict, both of the talons and the heart. An alternative and more quotidian setting would have been this image, the gable end of Monastery Farm, from where Billy Casper plucked his young bird in the film version of Barry Hines's A Kestrel for a Knave, tumble down, but standing at the side of the M1, South Yorkshire's post-industrial reply to the Hollywood sign. Retrospectively speaking, the lives and works of Tom Gunn and Ted Hughes seem to have little in common, though at the outset there were more similarities than differences. Alan Bold, in a short critical study of their poetry published in the mid-70s, entitled his first chapter, Ted Gunn, presenting the two poets as an amalgamated single entity and noting how even their names, both composed of single syllables, both forenames presented in abbreviated forms, surnames sitting next to each other in the alphabet, invited an obvious association. But the resemblances went further and deeper. Gunn was born in August 1929 and Hughes the following August, and the two undergraduates overlapped at Cambridge, though it seems they had no meaningful interaction. Both men completed national service, during which they both chose to protect their country by finding a quiet corner to curl up in and read the complete works of Shakespeare. And both enjoyed quick success and recognition. As early as 1962, the two of them were somewhat hastily and commercially being packaged together in a slim selection of work 
a volume that found its way into the stockrooms and libraries of school English departments and has apparently sold in excess of 80,000 copies. Attitudinally and thematically, there were also connections. So even though it was Hughes who declared himself ready for opening up negotiations with whatever happened to be out there, when other post-war poets just wanted to get back into civvies and settle down to a nice cigarette and a nice view of the park. The young Tom Gunn was equally combative in his own way. The title of his first collection, Fighting Terms, announcing an aggressive stance and promising to address the rules of engagement, the vocabularies of antagonism and confrontation, and the seasons and periods of war. It's Queensbury rules rather than the bare-knuckle boxing that characterises Hughes' early relationship with literature and civilization, But it's no less armed and engaged, a book staffed with combatants and stuffed with military imagery. Wounds, beachheads, sieges, regimes, barricades and revolt. The consequence of a childhood full of soldiers, an adolescence for which World War II was newsreel and soundtrack, and an indirect consequence, perhaps, of Gunn's mother having ingested the whole of Gibbon's decline and fall with Tom in utero. <laughs> Hughes's youthful imagination was similarly lit up by thoughts of battle, and his father's silence on the subject of his military service at Gallipoli seems only to have encouraged Hughes Jr.'s poetic fascination with war. Unlike Hughes, however, Gunn's poems are chilly and calculating, strategic rather than actively violent, and not a little standoffish. In a 1999 interview with James Campbell, Campbell refers to Hughes as the great hot-blooded poet and suggests that, in contrast, the temperature of Gunn's work is at point zero. Gunn replies, yes, I'm a cold poet, aren't I? It's there from the beginning, tonally, and continues throughout, not least in his poems about statuary and art, where the poet's gaze often turns away from the corporeal and the sentient, towards inert representations of the body and human emotions. Almost to the point of it being a verbal tick, the adjective hard reoccurs throughout Gunn's poetry, five times alone in the poem Iron Landscapes and the Statue of Liberty. Another difference between Gunn and Hughes might appear to be Gunn's preference for urban settings and situations, when Hughes's status as a nature poet no matter how simplified, is easily evidenced not just by the glories of his animal and landscape poems, but by his palpable disdain for the built and man-made environment. Witness in the M5 restaurant, where the refueling options are a tire-face pasty, an illusory coffee, or a gluey quasi-pie. Food for thought, as Hughes meditates on the idea of feeding his own life and freedom into a carburetor. Alas, the recent Southwest phenomenon that is Gloucester Services came too late for Hughes. That grass-roofed, timber-beamed town and country mashup between junctions 11A and 12, offering home-cured bacon, farm shop cheeses, and locally mongered sushi. But the rural-urban distinction between our two poets is not absolute, there being an unmistakable creature-like quality in Gunn. A tattooed panther on his arm is prominently and proudly displayed in a number of early photographs, like a Pullman-esque demon ready to spring into life. And where a nasturtium grows through a crack in a city wasteland, or a wild bird is tamed by a man's hand, it makes those poems all the more conspicuous. Many first collections are a coming together of individual poems written with ambition and hope 
rather than the certainty of publication. Poems perhaps alike in style and substance, but conceived by writers for whom the single poem rather than the book is the unit of production. And many first collections wear a slightly surprised expression on their face. It's part of the charm that brings them to readers' attention, as if the poems are startled to find themselves in the spotlight's glare. For that reason, there's often a temptation to practice a little retrospective cosmetic surgery once the author has established a more assured and affirmed identity. And so it was with fighting terms, which would go through a number of reworkings and reorderings in the course of Gunn's life. In that regard, Gunn was always a frank and self-deprecating commentator on his own output. I made various revisions for an edition brought out by the Hawkswell Press in New York. Unfortunately, there were scarcely improvements, he says with characteristic honesty in a note on the first Faber text of fighting terms. And in a postscript to a 1993 collected poems, he begins, in putting this collection together, I have omitted a dozen poems I find stupid or badly written. Reflecting on various recordings he made of his readings, he concluded, all are terrible. The American poet and critic August Kleinshaler, perhaps emboldened by his friend's candor, is equally blunt about Gunn's early work when, after praising fighting terms for its discipline, control and structure, goes on to label the book top-of-the-line juvenilia, interesting only in respect of the later work. In preferring Gunn's output from part two of My Sad Captains, that perceived sea change where Gunn transitions from metrical arrangements to syllabic William Carlos Williams-derived composition, Kleinzahler isn't just talking up Gunn's development as an honorary American poet. He's also defending him from a narrative in which that most English of young versifiers trades the native disciplines of rhyme and metre for sunshine, leather bars, rent boys, dope, amphetamines, LSD, and the most high tariff accusation of all, free verse. As if slack lines were the consequence of loose morals. Such prudish and jingoistic complaints may well have lurked in the reviews and comments of one or two British critics at the time. But the idea that Gunn's work only matures in the sexually liberated subcultures of California, or after Gunn experienced his first acid trip, is no less cliched. And long-term admirers have generally been interested in the full spectrum array of his poetry, from the formal to the experimental, and whatever hybridizations took place in between. Anglo-US continuities, as Gunn described them, which my life insists on. But in his frugal assessment of fighting terms, Kleinsahler makes a special exemption in the case of Tamer and Hawk, which he deems seamless in execution and faultless all the way through. I thought I was so tough, but gentled at your hands cannot be quick enough to fly for you and show that when I go, I go at your commands. Even in flight above, I am no longer free. You sealed me with your love. I am blind to other birds. A habit of your words has hooded me. As formerly, I wheel, I hover and I twist but only want the feel in my possessive thought of catcher and of court upon your wrist. You but half civilise, taming me in this way. Through having only eyes for you, I fear to lose, I lose to keep and choose tamer as prey. Gunn once observed that so many poems about animals by Lawrence, Marianne Moore or Ted Hughes are marvellous, but the subjects are dealt with from a human point of view. This in relation to his poem Yoko 
from 1976's Jack Straw's Castle about a friend's dog seen from the dog's perspective. I leap into the standing warmth, I plunge into the combination of old and new smells. Here on a garbage can at the bottom, so interesting, says Gunn, or says Yoko, rather. It's noteworthy that he should have listed Hughes among those who write about animals from an external perspective, partly because it's true only here and there, and partly because Yoko has more than a few echoes of Hughes's Wadwo, the monologue title poem published nine years earlier, whose speaker muses, what am I, nosing here, turning leaves over, following a faint stain on the air to the river's edge, I enter water, even finding a frog so interesting. There is, it seems to me, an intermittent dialogue between Gunn and Hughes that feels more than mere coincidence, a conversation that begins with Tamer and Hawk, an early and in some ways unrepresentative gun poem, yet one that survived all the later culling and sifting. In cocking our ear to space and in peering into the dark reaches of the night sky, we can hear echoes and see glimpses of the early universe, sounds and flickers that allow us to speculate about the Big Bang and the milliseconds that followed. Poems are the same if we listen and look carefully enough, and the closer to the source, the more telling and tantalising the signals, encoded with the conditions and preconditions of poetic emergence. Tamer and Hawk bleeps and bristles with such signs and indications, not least in its form, a product of Gunn's interests and learning up to that point, an education that had shaped his ambition to be the John Donne of the 20th century. Gunn's preoccupation with formal methodologies, especially in his first two books, has seen him described as metaphysical and Elizabethan, both terms being reasonably appropriate in the case of Tamer and Hawke, which bears all the hallmarks of a courtly romance presented as a falconry conceit delivered with lyrical lines. You can almost hear a lute playing in the background. It's a poem in which the two characters of the title and their tense relationship are not only described but embedded acoustically and visually right from the first line where thought and tough are representative of the poem's personnel. Opposites in some ways, one cerebral and passive, the other physical and active, yet similar in their constituent letters to the point of the latter actually being contained within the former. Kangaroo words, as they're sometimes known as, the host word pouching the jury word within. The placement across the line mirrors that of catcher and court further down in the poem. I don't think it's stretching a point either to notice at a subtextual level the word thou within that first line, again giving the poem a 16th or 17th century topspin, just as gentled tips its cap towards the aristocratic and the noble and sealed delivers historical veracity. The word describing the time-honoured practice of blindfolding birds, even to the point of threading the eyelids to keep them closed. Sealed as a homophone for sealed, S-E-A-L-E-D, also alerts us to the likelihood of other puns and wordplay in keeping with the riddling metaphysical style, as with habit in verse 2 and formally at the beginning of verse 3, which carries a whisper of formal, the archaic word for the female hawk or eagle, as in Chaucer's Parliament of Fowls, the formal on your hand so well he wrought, whose I am all and ever will her serve, do what her list to do me live or stirve. And since I've touched on the ornithological aspects here, <coughs> it might be worth remembering that Rather than referring to a single species, hawk is a general term, as is falcon, 
the two words being complacently and interchangeably used except by bird spotters and word spotters. The ability to hover, as acknowledged in verse 3, might suggest a kestrel, given that bird's celebrated ability to hang in an apparently fixed position in midair, though it's equally possible that Gunn is using hover in the broader sense, i.e. to be airborne in or around a certain area. Hopkins has been more particular in writing about a kestrel in the wind hover, though confusingly he refers to it as a falcon, as does Yates, whose unbiddable bird is rising beyond earshot rather than hedge-hopping or hunting by stealth as a hawk might. Thomas Nash, in Lenten Stuff, prefers the common name Windfucker. Why wouldn't he? As does Ben Johnson. Did you ever see, did you ever hear such a windfucker as this? Enquires Ned Claremont in Act 1, Scene 4 of Epicene. To add to the complication by returning to the word gentle, a falcon gentle is a hawking term usually applied to a female per peregrine. Gunn's raptor then is no more species specific than Yeats's, though the difference in the bird's responses couldn't be greater. Yeats is spiralling beyond instruction as the world tumbles out of control, Gunn's returning obediently to the wrist, a return nicely mimicked by the rhyme scheme of each verse. As I've said before in this lecture hall, claims about the effect of rhymes and the noises they make can be overstated to the point of absurdity. But here, in a poem in which handler and handled are presented in an edgy and complex association, the A-B-A-C-C-B rhyme pattern across each stanza subtly accentuates the power play between the two. The A rhymes in lines one and three set up an expectation of alternating sounds, an expectation disrupted by the abrupt C rhyme couplet in lines four and five, but it's the B rhyme that has the most powerful consequence, thrown out there at the end of line two, then absent for a further three lines before finally homing in and pairing with its mate as the last word of each stanza. In a longer-lined poem, the effect would be dissipated across the intervening syllables, but in lines of tight tetrameter, mostly, and an even shorter sixth line, the tuning fork of that B rhyme is still vibrating by the time its equivalent chime is struck. The rhyme, like the hawk, returns to the hand that released it. And she came just as good as first tarn, straight onto glove grabbing for mate. Could be another Chaucerian couplet if it weren't a line from Kez, spoken by an unusually excited Billy Casper as he describes to his teacher and classmates the astonishing moment when the wild bird is flown without creance and chooses the gauntlet of its owner rather than the endless freedom of the sky. Straight onto glove grabbing for mate. I don't like dramatising myself. I don't want to be Sylvia Plath, the last person I want to be, Gunn said in that same James Campbell interview. It's the perceived sensationalism and the narcissistic connoisseurism of the self in the likes of Lowell, Sexton and of course Plath that seemed to send Gunn scurrying back to more guileful and guarded modes of writing. His poem, Autobiography, he describes in one interview as a joke. So it's important, probably, on Gunn's behalf, to make a distinction between confessional poetry, the kind that performs open-heart surgery in front of the mirror, and personal poetry, poetry provoked or inspired or inflected by life events, the type of which no poet has ever managed to avoid. Gunn remarks, the danger of biography, and equally of autobiography, is that it can muddy poetry by confusing it with its sources. And he's right, 
in the sense that knowing Tamer and Hawke was written about Mike Kitte, Gunn's American lover at Cambridge, who we would follow to the United States and who remained a lifelong companion, makes it virtually impossible not to categorise it as an elusive but somewhat arch love poem, composed at a time when homosexuality was still a crime in the UK and Gunn not by any means an openly gay man. In that reading, the undeclared gendered elements take on an understated significance and the buried references to the female bird of the species become playful and ironic. So some might argue that shedding a little biographical light on the poem rescues it from its own deceptions and exposes its true intentions. Others might feel that such an interpretation represents a reduction of the poem's ambitions, restricting it to a cheesy pun, i.e. hawking as a gentlemanly pursuit, nudge nudge, wink wink. Either way, and issues of sexual orientation notwithstanding, the poem's local concerns are eventually transcended by the global psychodynamics of those final four lines, in which an intricate form of symbiosis and the necessary sacrifices and compromises occasioned by it are cast in a calculatingly Machiavellian turning of the tables. Mutualism is the term used to describe a cross-species biological barter, an example being the African honey guide bird, which at the sound of a whistle from honey-hungry tribespeople will lead said people towards a beehive incentivized by a share of the spoils. Quite how the hawk of Gunn's poem intends to turn any such mutualism to its advantage and the specific way Tamer will become prey isn't made literal or clear. Nor should it be, because Gunn's sudden and stunning about turn opens up all kinds of possibilities by which the apparently captive partner in this relationship might furtively draw sustenance and power from the apparent captor. In an older definition of the word, and as we've already noted, Gunn is not deaf to such provenances. Prey also means booty, or winnings, or prize. And just what trophy or reward this hawk anticipates is the subject of my final reading of the poem, which I'll come back to later. As the more acclaimed, famous and infamous poet of the two, Ted Hughes needs little introduction or documentation. So in the safe knowledge that both the biographical and critical context to Hughes are either well understood or widely available, I'll skip the backstory and get straight into the poetry. The title poem, an opening poem of Hughes's debut collection, offers a more earthbound perspective than Gunn's Tamer and Hawk. It's speaker trudging through wet and sticky mud, reminiscent of the World War I landscapes that would re-emerge in the same volume and beyond. And it is a kind of war. The aerial menace of the Hawk, surely a kestrel on this occasion, nonchalantly introduced mid-sentence in the closing moments of the first verse hanging like a dark seraph in the air of the stanza break, while down below the labouring mortal suffers the trials and indignities of geography, meteorology, plus the physical limitations of his own species. Via a poetry that carries strains of Yeats, Lawrence, Owen, and most definitely Dylan Thomas, the piece moves towards an image of the downed bird, like a crashed fighter plane, but it's only a maybe, a kind of wishful thinking or revenge fantasy on behalf of the speaker. Like Gunn's poem, The Hawk in the Rain is a man and bird two-hander, though this time the tale is told from the opposite point of view and there's little in the way of mutuality to be witnessed here. Except by desire, perhaps, through what feels to be the speaker's underlying envy of the bird's attributes, expressed as payback on the surface, 
but disguising a deep-lying admiration bordering on covetousness. It's a covetousness subliminally intimated through the hypnotized speaker's obsession with the hawk's eye, described as still and angelic. And because the optical eye and the first-person eye are perfect homophones, a point's reached where man and bird begin to converge, or the former begins to imagine himself the latter. I also firmly believe that The Hawk in the Rain is a poem about writing. No matter what philosophies, preoccupations, theologies and mythologies other commentators have proposed in their interpretations and evaluations. I don't say this glibly in the way that all paintings are about painting because they use paint or the way that all writing is about writing because it uses language. I mean in its deliberate word choice and its carefully constructed subtext. This is a poem in which the serried furrows of ploughed land are lines in which each clay-clogged step is a poetic foot, in which the earth's mouth, a repeated phrase, is attempting to give voice, and in which the point of will is the mind and instrument of the poet, aligned with notions of animal instinct, invigorated with primal reflexes, hovering over the flat, wet, muddy mess of literature. Hughes himself remarked how the book with which this poem shares its title intended to challenge everything being written in England. A bold statement in keeping with his determination to wriggle free of the terrible, suffocating, maternal octopus of ancient English poetic tradition. And anyone thinking that Hughes was beyond the programmatic endeavours or game-playing manoeuvres of writing poems about poems He'd only turn over two more pages from The Hawk in the Rain before encountering the Thought Fox, one of the most enigmatic and beguiling Ars Poetica pieces of the 20th century. Yet for all its impact at the time, The Hawk in the Rain, both poem and book, now reads like a dress rehearsal for what was to follow. Lupercal, published in 1960, drew strength not just from its predecessor's achievements, but from the attention and praise reserved for the animal poems. This time there were more, arguably, and they were better, arguably, and amongst the best of the better ones, unarguably, is Hawk Roosting. By now, Hughes would surely have read Gunn's Tamer and Hawk, and would no doubt have been aware of the overlaps, to the point where Hughes seems to pick up where Gunn signed off, the ruthless and imperious bird continuing its dramatic monologue, but now independent and autonomous, with a keeper's wrist replaced by the branch of a tree. The poem recycles, or perhaps regurgitates, notions of creation from the hawk in the rain. The way that bird once held all creation in a weightless quiet, like some kind of Charles Atlas come bossy britches librarian of the avian world, creation can now be held in a single foot, a foot that all creation designed. Magisterial and indisputably militaristic on its perch, the roosting hawk oozes arrogance and assurance. So we might infer from its silhouette some form of imperial emblem or fascistic insignia, and hear in its soliloquy the voice of a dispassionate and tyrannical dictator. Considering the poem as a portrait or aria of political and psychological megalomania has been a profitable exercise not just for dedicated Hughes scholars, but for the hundreds of thousands of students who have done hawk roosting in the classrooms and exam rooms of Britain, often encountering it in the conflict section of an exam anthology and being encouraged to discuss it in the same terms as the charge of the light brigade perhaps, <laughs> or any number of World War I poems. Hughes himself once described the subject of the poem inexplicably as peace, 
and elsewhere retrospectively identified the hawk as the Egyptian sky deity Horus. My own inclination, at least for the purpose of this lecture, is once again to see it as a poem about writing, both as a continuance of the argument taking place between the lines of the hawk in the rain, and in conjunction with Gunn's Tamer and Hawk. Not long after the appearance of his first collection, Hughes became a well-known poet, a status most poets never achieve in the whole of their life. He might not have had the world at his feet or creation in his claws exactly, but he had most definitely made an impression and had done it his way on his terms, being marked out as different, special, unique. If the confirmation and approval flattered him, it also appears to have empowered him. Hughes writing with greater conviction and clarity through the late 50s, much of that period spent in America, incidentally, with Sylvia Plath. And it's the culmination of that conviction, not only in his ability, but in his preferred and affirmed role as a maverick and outsider that leads Hughes, I believe, to the final line of Hawk Roosting. A line breathtaking in its simplicity and jaw-dropping in its condescension from a poem whose composition was truly one of the best moments of my life. I am going to keep things like this is an assertion of poetic intent made by a poet who had got things as he wanted them and felt he had the power to maintain control. It's a top-down authoritarian diktat issued both to himself and to his growing number of readers, a manifesto-style declaration that would have proved far too egotistical and reactionary had it been delivered directly from the poet's throat. So instead, Hughes channels its message through his totemic alter ego, the hawk. His own voice, a kind of subwoofer beneath the more immediate and proximate claims of the bird. Claims which, in keeping with the poem's persona, read as a plausible version of a raptor's thought process where nature is thinking. I am going to keep things like this. Not just a prediction, but a guarantee, even a threat, with that beautifully disarming imbalance between the imprisoning keep and the nebulous, deliberately generalized things. What things? Oh, you know, everything. And it's the determination of the I am portion of the statement that I associate most closely with Tamer and Hawk. Here in its equivalent in the poem's penultimate end word, choose. Choice is a central concern in Gunn's work as an aspect of existential free will. And in Tamer and Hawk, I hear another poetic mission statement, a vow or sworn oath on the part of the author to be both civilized and wild in relation to his art, to be both captive and captivating to accept whatever nourishment is offered, but also to bite the hand that feeds. Tamer and Hawk, and Hawk Roosting, whatever their alternative identities, are proclamations from two young men to whom poetic recognition came early and easily. Surly and macho poems from emergent poets, who as well as being real life tough guys in their different ways, were combative and belligerent on the page. Hughes brawny and muscular in his diction, gun with his six-pack stanzas and hench rhymes. Hughes drawn to the unanswerable violence of the natural world and gun flirting with man's inherent violence within and between himself. Although in Gunn's case, my assessment of his desire for control and authority doesn't go as far as Google Books, which identifies him via a link from his website as the author of no lesser work than the Holy Bible. Be the first person to review this product. 
Well, he makes some interesting points about God in that, but part one a bit far-fetched. I am going to keep things like this. I choose tamer as prey. So how did it work out? Well, as Robbie Burns reminds the best laid schemes of mice and men gang aft a glay. And what went a glay for both Gunn and Hughes, what they couldn't fortify themselves against, and what they couldn't foresee as the cocky young gang leaders of the new poetry with territory to protect, competitors to see off and supply lines to maintain were matters of love and death. Spoken in this context, the word suicide will automatically evoke the presences of Sylvia Plath and of Asia Weevil, whose deaths, to frame it fatalistically, as Hughes often did, still lay in wait for the author of Hawk Roosting. But for Tom Gunn, a suicide haunted the past. When Gunn was 15, his mother gassed herself in the living room of their Hampstead house. Gunn and his brother coming in from the garden to discover the body. In this year's publication of Gunn's selected poems, its editor Clive Wilmer includes among extensive and illuminating notes an entry from Gunn's diary at the time. It begins, Mother died at 4am Friday, December the 29th, 1944. She committed suicide by holding a gas poker to her head and covering it all with a tartan rug we had. She was lying on the sheepskin rug, dressed in a beautiful long red dressing gown and pillows were under her head. Her legs were apart, one shoe half off and her legs were white and hard and cold and the hair seemed out of place growing on them. In fact, Wilmer implies that this was Gunn's first ever diary entry and students of literature and or human nature might reasonably speculate that an incident as traumatic as this, witnessed so graphically at such an impressionable age and prompting Gunn to pick up his pen in response, would at some stage find itself the subject of his poetry. When no such work materialised, at least not for the best part of half a century, the next assumption would be a connection between the poet's expressed aversion to confessional writing and his long silence on the subject of his mother. In fact, it makes his comment about Plath, who of course died in similar circumstances, all the more resonant. It's also difficult not to associate Gunn's descriptions of statuary with the white and hard and cold legs described in the diary. You may from this conclude I like the things that help me, if not lose, then leave behind what else? The self, he appears to confide towards the end of his longer poem, Transients and Residents. There are, it should be acknowledged, glimpses of the maternal across the spread of Gunn's work, but glimpses is all they are. In Rites of Passage, the metamorphic first poem of Gunn's LSD-inspired collection, Moly, the speaker's sudden mutation into adolescence is presented as a transformation from human to beast, one that taunts and goads its father while attempting to communicate with an absent, perhaps buried figure. It ends, I stamp upon the earth a message to my mother, and then I lower my horns. Rites of passage calls back to the earlier poem, The Goddess, where a soldier in a park waits for Proserpina's emergence from the dark of the underworld. And in the still earlier, Jesus and his mother, Mary's line, I taught you speech, we named the birds, recalls how Gunn's love of literature came only from his mother, not at all from his father, who only read journalism and detective fiction. No offence, crime writers. Of course, detective fiction can be literature. Don't shoot the messenger. 
Or if you do, make sure you wipe the prints from the trigger <laughs> and hide the weapons somewhere where the jaded and divorced and recovering alcoholic cop with the enigmatic surname who's about to be taken off the case can't find it until chapter 22. <laughs> but if the closing moments of Tamer and Hawke were written as a stay against sentimentality and mawkishness, and to bolster Gunn's icy poetic convictions going forward. It's also noticeable through the course of his work how often the image or idea of a person holding or holding onto another person by the hand or arm reoccurs. And the extent to which the meaning of that gesture, which in the coming together of talon and wrist is an image of duplicity, becomes a signal of compassion and condolence in the later work. In the J-car, Gunn walks his dying friend through the suburban cool by dimming church and Catholic school. Dimming not just in the evening light, but because the friend's eyesight is failing and his strength fading, so my assumption is that they walk arm in arm. And in the poem, A Blank, Gunn observes an acquaintance in the street with a four-year-old blonde child tugging his hand, a hand that's reached across the biological gap the boy has adopted to offer this fair-topped organism dense with charm, its braided muscle grabbing what would serve, his countering pull, his own devoted arm. The motif re-emerges in Gunn's elegy for Robert Duncan from his final book, Boss Cupid, Following his last ever poetry reading, Duncan falls down the steps of Wheeler Hall at Berkeley into the strong arms of Tom Gunn, a myth, according to Gunn, who nevertheless was present and picked him up where he had softly dropped a pillow full of feathers. And that arm-in-arm -arm companionship is there again in Terminal, a description of another ailing friend Resistant to all help, however good, now helped through day itself, eased into chairs, or else led step by step down the long stairs with firm and gentle guidance by his friend. The poem ends, I think of Oedipus, old, led by a boy, an idea that ushers us, guides us, points us, finally, unexpectedly, but perhaps inevitably, to the two late poems on the specific subject of his mother. His mother, whose own name, Thompson, he adapted and adopted as his own first name, having actually been born William Gwynich Gunn. It's as if brotherly love had to precede motherly love in the sequence of his work, as if the man with night sweats his great sequence of elegies and laments for those friends and acquaintances who died in the HIV epidemic of the 80s and early 90s had opened up some new line of communication between his heart and his head. The poem, My Mother's Pride, ends, I am made by her and undone. And on the following page, Overleaf, we encounter the more astonishing the gas poker, which opens not just with a realization of time having passed, but an acknowledgement, I think, of how long the poem has been in the making. 48 years ago, can it be 48 since then, they forced the door which she had barricaded with a full bureau's weight, lest anyone find as they did what she had blocked it for. She had blocked the doorway so to keep the children out. In her red dressing gown, she wrote notes, all night busy pushing the things about, thinking till she was dizzy before she had lain down. The children went to and fro on the harsh winter lawn, repeating their lament, a burden to each other in the December dawn elder and younger brother, till they knew what it meant. Knew all there was to know. Coming back off the grass, 
to the room of her release. They who had been her treasures knew to turn off the gas, take the appropriate measures, telephone the police. One image from the flow sticks in the stubborn mind, a sort of backwards flute. The poker that she held up breathed from the holes aligned into her mouth till, filled up by its music, she was mute. Gunn said that the poem came easy once he'd hit upon the idea of writing about the incident in the third person, because it was no longer about myself. An externalizing strategy that allowed Gunn to maintain his artistic and intellectual position in relation to confessional writing and to keep him from becoming Sylvia Plath. But from a reader's point of view, the poem's faux dispassion only ramps up the sense of a hidden hurt finally addressed and a weeping wound belatedly attended to. I wonder if it's this controlled aloofness or some other quality that brought the poem to the attention of the Good Funeral Guide website. It appears on one of its blog pages beneath a helpful diagram of the offending implement. <laughs> Returning to Hughes, I'd argue that those endlessly publicised catastrophic events in his private life sent the lofty and hubristic roosting hawk into exactly the kind of tailspin fantasised about in the last stanza of The Hawk in the Rain. From around the mid to the late 60s, the voice that had proved so captivating and confident in early hues began to ventriloquise less familiar locutions, and the set-piece poems and mainstream collections are replaced by fugitive or outlier configurations of work. Projects emerging through the smoke and mirrors of limited editions and private pressings, or projected through prisms of semi-mystical ritual and rite, or presented as obscure dramatic sequences, or delivered from behind masks and disguises. Interestingly, three such works are bird-related. The first was Crow, starring a charred and desensitized post-apocalyptic Covid grubbing among the moral ruins of civilization. Next came Cave Birds, summarized as far as possible by Neil Roberts as a, a myth in which the crime of modern humanity, symbolically male, against nature, symbolically female, is superimposed on his personal guilt about the deaths of women he had loved. Staged and structured as a courtroom drama in an underworld setting, the guilty and executed protagonist is resurrected in the closing moments of the sequence in a poem entitled The Risen, accompanied by Leonard Baskin's drawing of a crouching raptor. The poem ends, but when will he land on a man's wrist? There's no question mark attached to the sentence and no answer supplied. The third of the riddling avian poem dramas is Adam and the Sacred Nine, in which the world's first man is called upon by nine different birds, each bringing with it its own message or teaching. A reworking of Kabbalistic mysticism it may well be, but for me, any such theological or philosophical underpinning is essentially a foundation platform for more veiled poetic soul-searching, with the guilt-stricken author as the disgraced Adam lying in a puddle of mud contemplating his future. A visiting dove struggles to deliver her milky blood and the flesh of her breast, eventually finding a perch in a body of thorns. And the visiting falcon seems more machine or fighter jet than bird, with its gunmetal feathers and bullet brow and tooled bill, insisting on its falconness, insisting that Adam man up and find the falcon within. In some respects, 
It's not dissimilar to the poem The Sparrowhawk that opens Hughes's 1989 collection Wolf Watching, a wonderful field note delivered with typical Hughesian imagery and relish. Those eyes in their helmet still wired direct to the nuclear core. But unlike the monologue of Hawk Roosting, the Sparrowhawk here is a third person hymn, removed, remote, and described with an air of longing and wistfulness, a bird seen at distance in the twilight, among oaks likened to that most nostalgic of instruments, the harp. I hear melancholy in the poem, a poet contemplating a fleeting image of his younger self. Just to be clear, in using bird poems and bird sequences to chart a descent in Hughes's poetry, I'm not talking about a fall in the standard of work. Some of those poems, books and assignments are amongst his most revered and discussed. I'm talking about descents into regret, difficulty, terseness, obscurity, evasion, fragmentation and stealth. Declensions of thought and purpose that are detectable right up until the publication of birthday letters. If that sounds like a crude narrative, assembled with the benefit of hindsight and making all kinds of impertinent assumptions, it's one that seems to be shared by Hughes himself. What should have been a solid city of a life's work had turned out to be a series of hasty campfires. To quote Jonathan Bate, quoting from one of Hughes's notebooks, with Hughes apparently acknowledging that his real poetic work had been blocked since at least 1970. In a 1998 letter to his son Nicholas that eventually turns to the same subject, Hughes says, so all I wrote through all those years contained nothing of what I really needed to say. He describes the business of your mother and me as a log jam and a glass door obstacles barring his way forward for decades. Many of the poems in birthday letters or versions of them were composed long before publication, but making them public, like a confession, says Hughes, was the act by which the logjam was detonated and the glass door shattered. He, he writes, and the effect on me, Nicky, the sense of gigantic upheaval transformation in my mind is quite bewildering. It's as though I have completely new different brains. I can think thoughts I never could think. I have a freedom of imagination I've not felt since 1962. Put simply, by finally giving in to the autobiographical impulses he denied himself, Hughes is taken beyond mere relief or release towards something approaching euphoria and rapture. I say denied himself, though of course confessional writing was hardly an option for Hughes at the time, since no direct exposure of the soul could have contended with or replied to the tense and tender and tormented agonies of Plath's Ariel could have answered the cries and calls like those of the hurt and harmed falcon of Chaucer's squire's tail. I can't say if Gunn felt a comparable exhilaration when finally addressing the subject of his mother's death, but in the very appearance of the gas poker, there's a sense of the drawbridge coming down, of Gunn uncoupling from those concepts linked like chainmail in the mind lifting the curfew and the state of martial law imposed on his work and acquiescing to his own observation whereby continual temptation waits on each to renounce his empire over thought and speech. As with Gunn, even though Hughes put up firm defences and operated for years with something of a bunker mentality, there were always ecstasies, elations and epiphanies to witness here and there in the gaps, as with his poem, A Dove, first published in 1979 and afforded a special place in the contents tables of his books, 
cushioned from other poems by a gap or line space. The poem has an antecedent in the dove breeder from the hawk in the rain, a piece in which love strikes from above like a hawk into a dovecot, a bloodthirsty energy the breeder manages to turn to his advantage, Tom Gunn style, ending with the couplet, now he rides the morning mist with a big-eyed hawk on his fist. Note, not wrist, but fist. Of its sequel, if I can put it like that, Gunn once wrote to Hughes, just now reading a dove again, I first questioned line three, wings snickering. But then I heard the dove's wings in my mind doing just that. For its rightness, it reminds me of the phrase I have liked so many years of your gnats scribbling on the air. So accurate, such phrases that they seem obvious and yet no one ever said them before you. Thank you.